Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm really excited. This is going to be a good one. Jimmy DeResta is here. I'm sure if you know me from my This Old House days, then you know who Jimmy DeResta is. Jimmy's probably, of all the guests I've had on the show, he's the one that I know the best at this point. He's the one that I knew the most going into the interview because he has been a guest star on Ask This Old House, I think five different times, something like that. Uh, We started working together about three years ago, and he's somebody that we brought in to do various different projects with us. Jimmy is what's known as a maker. He's a woodworker. He's a metal worker. He's a welder. He does digital fabrication with CNC machinery. He does leather work. Anything that you need built, Jimmy can figure out how to make it. But I didn't want to just talk to him about making. The conversation that I'm more interested in and that I think is is more relevant to most of you listening is Jimmy's transition from a television host to a YouTuber. As you'll hear in this interview, Jimmy did a number of different shows. He's been on several networks at this point, FX, HGTV, DIY, Discovery, NBC. And at every turn, he was either working with people that didn't understand him, networks that didn't know how to promote him, didn't know how to build an audience for him. And at a certain point, about eight years ago, he just decided, I'm going to make my own YouTube videos. I don't need a team of producers. I don't need a professional director of photography. I don't need an editor. I can do all those things. And there's this amazing thing called YouTube where I can just upload it and I can make money doing that. And so Jimmy has continued to do that now very successfully. He's got close to 2 million subscribers on his YouTube channel now. And I just thought his knowledge, both of the TV world and of the kind of self-employed YouTube world, would be really perfect for this moment right now, where I think those of us like me that have a have background in professional television and are, are used to being on big crews and working with a lot of people, we're all kind of reassessing that right now and saying, okay, it's going to be a long time before I'm back on a TV set. So how do I have a creative outlet in this time? How do I make money doing the work that I love during this time? And Jimmy's been doing that for the last eight years or more. So he has a lot of really great information just sort of about looking at at alternative forms of video outside of networks and cable and streaming Working for yourself, charting your own course, controlling your own destiny. So it's a really fascinating conversation. Jimmy has a workshop in the Catskills region of of New York, upstate, about two hours from the city. And Jimmy's just, he's a cool guy. I will also say one of the things we talk about at the end here is he is good friends with Nick Offerman, who I've interviewed on this show. And if you haven't heard that interview, go listen to that because that one's also really cool. But Jimmy was friends with Nick before Parks and Recreation, before he was a a big celebrity. They just bonded over making stuff together. And Nick is at least part of the reason why we ended up working with Jimmy DeResta. Nick's written about Jimmy a couple of times now in his book Gumption and in his book Good Clean Fun. And we were shooting at Offerman Woodshop, I don't know, three, four years ago. And Nick says, do you know Jimmy DeResta? Because I think he'd fit in really well with you guys. And got connected to him, did some projects, and he has just an amazing fan base. I'm sure a lot of you are probably new listeners just because of Jimmy. Jimmy said, hey, go listen to this interview, and you're here, so thank you. I have felt so lucky to get to know him over the last three or four years. Jimmy's mind works faster than anybody I've ever worked with. He is so sharp. He's so quick. And for me as a director, he understood exactly what I needed at any given point. He knew exactly where the camera should be. He knew exactly what line he should be saying. He just understood how to work with a camera team. And it kind of elevated all of our game, too. I I would walk away not just learning about construction from Jimmy or building or making, but learning about technical things. He would teach us about GoPros and editing and just because he'd done it all. So he's a really fascinating guy. I'm so glad we had a chance to catch up. Here's my interview with maker, YouTuber, TV host, Jimmy DeResta. I, I, I guess I just want to start with sort of how your quarantine has been going. 
I tell you what, this has been one of the most creative times in my adult life. Yeah. Totally. Honestly, it's been absolutely fantastic to be uninterrupted, not working against, you know, this visit or that trip or that, uh, you know, road trip. It's, it's been amazing. Like every single day I wake up and it feels like Saturday. Yeah. Saturday is usually my day to tinker and just kind of be alone in the shop. And even though I have a couple of employees hanging around me lately, the pressure is totally not there. Work is coming in. It's it's been great. That's awesome. What yeah. uh, what kinds of projects have you have you been working on? Uh, well, it's funny. I just um, I, I did lose one advertiser through all this, and that got me a little nervous. And it, it I started kind of overcompensating and just start making stuff for my website. Yeah. So my website just relaunched and it's doing really well. I've been kind of bumping along selling products on the website, but not really focusing on it or really promoting it. Yeah. I teamed up with these guys that are really good at marketing and they're like, you're sitting on a gold mine and you're not tapping it. And we, they revamped the website, changed the commerce page to a different uh, system, which all this is above my pay grade. <laughs> and I pulled them in as small partners and this way they're completely committed and they've been giving me great ideas. And me, I have a business partner, Howard, and Howard has been really dealing with, uh, you know, the backroom stuff and I'm just dealing with the creative stuff. And that team is, is made up of about four people. Every time I get involved, they're like, you know what, you just go back in the shop. We, we don't need you here. <laughs> and it's been great. It's yeah. been fantastic. I've been, uh, just coming up with ideas. Um, I just got a big bullet bourbon job, which is great. Uh, obviously, the liquor business hasn't slowed down right. through all this. And, that's and you've worked with them on a bunch of stuff too, right? Yeah, bullet bourbon has been very good to me. Diageo is, is the, the parent brand, yeah. and bullet bourbon is one of them. And I work with a subcontracting marketing team. Diageo has a lot of executives. They're really kind of just brand managers, and then they subcontract out all like the real marketing and, and job activations and stuff and location activations and and installs for like bars and stores. And so I work with a team that is like second tier. Yeah. They don't work directly for Diageo. So they're a marketing crew. I've known them for about eight years now and we've had a, an amazing creative run together and, and they've become really close friends. And uh, so Bobby and Chuck have been so good to me. And out of nowhere, Chuck hit me up and he's like, Hey, do you think you could make this? I was like, sure. And I go, how many? Just joking around. Then he writes back, he goes, five, maybe 10. It's a half of a teardrop trailer, which would kind of stick out of a facade, which we make a fake facade and wall. And it pops out. So the whole back opens up and it's full of bullet bourbon in the shelf. Yeah. I th- I saw that on your Instagram, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm making five of them right now. That's and awesome. then, then they bump the, uh, the delivery date up. He's like, you think you could have three of them by the end of, end of the month, the 28th. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to raise you and see you. I'm going to see you and raise you. I'm going to have all five of them done. Nice. Because I don't want to have to like get in that mindset over again, you know? Yeah. So it's like I have them all lined up in the black barn and I'm just building them like as if I'm a company making airstreams. Like a particular thing gets added to one, it gets added to all of them. So they all move along at the same pace. That's the way to do it, I guess, right? Yeah. It's so much easier to do like eight of them than one full one and then another full one and another full one. That's by production mind. I spent many years developing and designing products. And so my production mind is if I got to make one of them, it's easy to make 10 of them. You yeah. know, if I have to do make 10 of them, it's easy to make 10 of them all at the same time. Right. While well, the tool's set up and you you get that kind of yeah. muscle memory going, just go right down the exactly. line and bang through them. And I have yeah. some help lately too. So I can just say, hey, you see this? Well, watch me do one and yep. then you do the next four. And it's been fantastic. Nice, nice. Well, so I want to dive in more, I think, like I know you on the maker side and we've done a bunch of projects together through Ask the Sell House over the years, but like, I'm really interested. We haven't talked a lot about kind of your video work and both like the TV series that you've done over the years and then kind of Mm -hmm. YouTube and things like that. And, you know, since this, this podcast is more kind of focused on, you know, media and, and entertainment industry and stuff like, I just kind of wanted to go down that path with you, I think. Sure. Uh, but before we get there, I, I, I want to hear the story again of sort of your background and sort of, you know, you, you've had tools in your hand from a very early age, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since as early as I could remember. I mean, my dad was just always sticking tools in my hands. I, I showed promise as a kid. I was always a little bit more extra when it comes to art and crayons and yeah. wanting to draw and sketch. And my dad cultivated that. I mean, people ask me. You know, I meet people at Make Affair and they're like, what can I do to get my child? I'll just keep sticking tools in front of them. You know, if, if it's going to stick, it's going to stick. If not, it's not. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. But from an early age, my dad put tools in front of all of us. And I was the one that excelled in it the most. And my sister is full hands on now. She makes jewelry. Nice. So it stuck with her for a little bit. And she's full on gem setter and everything. She's really good with her hands. And my brother, John, 
out in LA is, and Joey is more like as a home home improvement DIY guy, but he's more of a business salesman. Yeah. But we all grew up with tools around us, and I excelled at it. And I knew people around me knew I was an artist more than I did because I just to me it was natural. And people would be like, "Oh, let Jimmy do it. He could draw it. Let Jimmy try it." And I'd be like, they give it to me, and like you know, in kindergarten, I remember people saying, "Jimmy can draw it." I'm like, oh, wow. I don't know. "Can it? Can everybody draw it?" <laughs> and it was just a way of expressing yourself. It was just came natural to me, yeah. So yeah. as I got up in, in years in high school and middle school, I always just hung around the art department, and I kind of was, I kind of had a reputation that preceded me because the teachers realized that I was good at art, you right. know, whatever that meant at the time. Obviously, nothing was really defined, but when it came to sculpting and using tools and and paints and stuff, I just had a natural knack to took to it yeah and what, did your dad do that work professionally or was he just kind of a like a tinkerer my dad was a, a new york city fireman uh -huh. and uh and a, and a builder and uh more of a handyman i'd say yeah he didn't really like taking on big big jobs with lots of responsibility he never really liked the business aspect of having insurance and, and getting involved in all that stuff so he would have he had a big truck full of tools and occasionally he worked with interior designers just doing whatever they needed but he never did like full-scale stuff like yeah. he never like rebuilt the ground floor or never sided a house. He always did kind of small, small, simple jobs that he could finish in a week. Well, it's kind of, that, that's what a lot of firemen do, right? Cause it's like a 24 yep. on 48 off or something like that. Right. So you, ha exactly. you have the time to, you can go and kind of do other things. Uh, and, and yeah. so then you, you ended up kind of pursuing art as a career, right? You, you went to the school of visual arts and then ended I up did in, in high school, my dad encouraged me to become an architect because uh -huh. in his experience, he realized the architects were the ones that got paid a lot. And so he encouraged me to be an architect and I liked it. I mean, as a kid, I helped him do some of the work that he did. I was always his, his helper. And most often, as opposed to my brothers, occasionally there'd be a big job and my brothers would come and they would kind of be more like, you know, unskilled labor, carry this, move that. And right. My dad would, would count on me to do a little bit more of the skilled stuff. And as I, and I showed more of an interest in it. And uh, as I got into high school, my dad encouraged me to go to, in Long Island, Northeast, I think we have the BOCES. Do you guys have the BOCES program in Mass? It's a Board of Cooperational Educational Services. I don't, it's, it, it doesn't sound familiar to me, but yeah, what, what is it? You can go to high school half the day. You spend half the day at this vocational school and you oh, can cool. learn anything from dental assistantry, uh, dental, uh, dental tech. I don't know what, whatever that might yeah, be. Yeah. And um, you could learn how to build boats. You could work, work on small engines, automotive, and they had architecture and math. And so I went to architecture and math for ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade. Oh, half wow. the day I'd spend, actually I think just 10, 11 and 12. I spent half the day at this school and then I get bust and dropped off in front of my regular high school and go to, you know, the few classes because of that, I, I was able to develop a lot of credits because I took that specialized schooling so i come to school for just a couple of simple classes yeah and were you uh was this like pre-cad was this all kind of hand-drawn architecture yeah. at that time oh well, yeah. Well, yeah this is 1984 83 45 yeah and you know, it was all hand sketching and you know i learned the technique of dragging a pencil and spinning it while you're dragging along a ruler so that the tip always stays sharp so the whole time you're dragging the pencil you spin it people see me do that technique and they're like did you invent that? I'm like, no, Tony Fiatistov taught me that. Yeah, Tony was yeah. an architect. Tony Fiatistov. I almost forgot how to say his name. He uh, he took me and my class to the opening of Trump Tower in 1983 or four. Oh wow! We all hopped in a bus and because he lived in the neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, we all this was somewhere in like Westbury, Long Island, which is where the school was, about 30, 40 miles from the city. Right. And he brought us all to the to Trump Tower to kind of gaze at the beauty of. The pink Trump marble Tower. and the, yeah. the waterfalls and all that, yeah, yeah, wild. yeah. So you know, you you had that kind of background in in architecture, in design, and in, in tinkering, and you know, just working with tools. At what point did the transition to television happen? Oh, okay. So I'll give you the quick the quick synopsis. Is I I, I decided to go to art school instead because I I was really horrible at math, yeah. and I I started really realizing the potential of someone like Picasso and, and Andy Warhol and Leonardo da Vinci. And I started thinking to myself, these guys weren't licensed architects, but they could do and design and build anything because of that, their clout. Sure. And those guys were my inspiration. So I said, you know what, I'm not going to art. I'm not going to go to architecture school and just be like another sheep that that's really good at math. And I also started to develop my disdain for architects and you've been in the business. I mean, you know what architects are like versus sure. craftsmen. Yeah. And uh, they're, they always seem to overcomplicate things or, they come in with these ideas that are grandiose. They, they tend to put their 
their personality into their design yep. a little too much. Their ego, I guess, right. is really the right way to say it. Their ego is too involved in the design. And now architects are going to send me hate mail, which is all fine. <laughs> I actually stood up. I stood up in front of an architectural uh, group. They invited me to come and talk about recycling products. And I, I basically said, there's too many egos in architecture. They, they, you know, if you wanted to be an artist, you should have became a sculptor. Hmm. Uh, you know, you're wasting too much airspace with your crazy designs. And then like one by one, like, throughout the, the rest of the day because it was a weekend thing they were like i really appreciated what you said you know really <laughs> but they couldn't say they couldn't say it publicly <laughs> like you know frank gary okay you know yeah. he celebrated he should have been a sculptor right. you know he should have been like richard chamberlain and not an architect and, and i said i go i see these buildings that like someone like frank gary designed and i and i look at it from an engineering point of view i just see a million leaks right. i don't see you know I, I look at them like it's not practical. You had a cube airspace. You've wasted 90% of it on your artistic vision. Yeah. And, you should have made a marble sculpture and then made a proper building. <laughs> and you can only have, you know, one Frank area on your skyline. You can't, you can't have, you know, 40 of those kinds of buildings. They're just too, there's too yeah. much going on. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I always took more of a practical approach when it comes to architecture and design. But uh, so I decided to go to art school instead, the urging of a few friends. They're like, you know, you're more of an artist. You should really go to like graphic design. And then when I was in graphic design, I really wasn't having fun with it. I did everything three-dimensionally. I was hand-making everything. And then in the middle of my school year from 85, I went to SBA, School of Visual Arts, 85 to, to 90. I, 88, 89, 90, I got into three-dimensional illustration, which is basically just like industrial design, 3D illustration for props for movies. It, it, at the time, it was really just being a maker, but yeah. that term didn't come up until 30 years later. But right. I was, you could basically problem solve anything. Oh, you need a, an image of this for a photograph? Let's make a big plastic apple out of, out of resin, which is something I did with a teacher at the time. Um, oh, you need to, you need to make a, a product that's going to, you know, house a computer. I, I mean, even in that class 30 years ago, I came up with the idea of having a computer screen in a table where you would order your, your food and the waitress would only be there to just bring the food to you. You would never have to talk to her. Wow. And you could, and I, you know, these are ideas I came up with when I was at school, but yeah. you know, that's kind of low hanging fruit in this grand scheme of things. Uh, so it was fun. I got to really be an inventor. And then I met a teacher named Mark and Mark uh, introduced me to toy design. And so I went into toy design uh, until from 1990 until 2005 Wow. Is really like the the solid years of me designing, developing, manufacturing toys. I, I go to China all the time. Long. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And all the while doing like like industrial design was completely involved in that. But um, I meant to say doing interior design and uh, art, uh, uh, architectural type stuff and built-ins, all for myself and my friends and family. Yeah. You know, never really doing it on a grand scale. Right. And then in two thousand and two. While I was still doing toy business stuff, I started teaching myself how to edit with Final Cut Pro uh -huh. through some friends. And it was just a curiosity thing. And then my brother said, since you know how to edit, why don't we shoot a pilot? I have this idea where I pick garbage and make it into stuff. Yeah. So right after Because your brother, he, he, was a, he was a comedian, right? Is that, my brother was a comedian and yeah. an actor, yeah. yeah. And, and when John started getting some success in the late 90s, he had a TV show. And then he, he got it to do a movie with De Niro and a movie with Sandra Bullock and a few people. Everyone was looking at me because I was like a single guy in, in manhattan everyone's like are you gonna go into the movies now are you gonna go i'm like well i mean and i always said it you know it was, it was kind of prophetic i never had any path i never knew where it was going to lead i never really pursued it i said i would only really do tv movies if i could just be myself i, right. I can't you know i don't have the urge to act like somebody else um outside of you know just imitating somebody for one minute as a joke in a conversation but, you know, I said I would never do that unless I could just be myself. Right. And I never knew that I would be like, you know, the maker guy. That yeah. was never even a plan. So John and says, so, let's, let's shoot a pilot. Let's shoot a pilot. I shot the pilot with John in L.A., him picking garbage, making a table out of it. We made it 30 minutes long. John's agent looked at it and goes, surprisingly, this is actually good. Huh. He's like, you know, he goes, I'm going to be honest with you. His name is Barry Katz, who has a great podcast called yeah. Industry Standard. And uh, Barry looked at it and goes, I'm not going to lie. He goes, I thought this was going to be a waste of my time. He goes, but I actually like it. Huh. He goes, but the big problem is he goes, no one's going to look at a 30-minute tape. Right. So I was working in an office at a toy company at the time in Manhattan. I was kind of like a subcontractor in somebody's office. Barry came to meet me. We spent about four hours and got that 30-minute tape down to six minutes. Wow. And then Barry, Barry brought that in. And I, that, was, like, that was one of those lessons where you would be like, Unbelievable, you know, just sitting with someone with experience like him at the time. And that was so many years ago. That's awesome. Uh, 18, 18 years ago. So 
Barry took that seven, eight, six minute tape, six, seven minutes long. He brought that in and he was able to pitch and sell it to Fox. There was a, a production company, an internal production company at Fox Studios. And they picked it up and they put it on FX Network. Okay. But going back, so we had the original pitch meeting. Barry's like, I got interest from this guy, David. I forget his name. Um, we need to have the second meeting where you guys come in and you pitch. Yeah. And we came in and he basically looked at both of us and he says, okay, I get it, John. You're the talent. You're funny. Jimmy, what are you doing in the meeting? Like, what is your point of view? Like, what, what are you here for? I was like, well, I'm certainly here to, to, uh, to help sell the show, but I want to sell myself as a producer, behind the scenes designer and uh, sort of production designer of the show and all the products my brother will make on camera what we find out of the garbage. And he looked through my portfolio and I had prepared a bunch of concepts for episodes, all just hand drawings of Magic Walker. Like in this episode, we'd make a boat out of 100 plastic bottles. And in yeah. this episode, you know, we'd make a, 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 a greenhouse out of all abandoned window sashes. And he looked at us and he goes, well, since you make stuff and you're funny, he goes, why don't you just be funny? Why don't you just make stuff? Are you okay being on camera? <laughs> I said, sure. And he goes, all right, let's shoot a pilot and see how it goes. And that was it. That was my entrance into the TV business. Wow. And, what I, did that, and I totally yeah. didn't expect that. When we walked into that meeting, I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to get a job in TV, right. you know, because this is going to think this is nepotism. So that's why I had to over-prepare. My portfolio was like two inches thick with all the things that I knew how to make at the time. And uh, he looked at that and just goes, well, why don't you just make on camera and why don't you just be funny? Yeah. That's it. Because if you guys like that idea, let's do it. And so it's the two of you, and that, that that was trash to cash, right? Was that that, that was, was trash to cash? Yeah. yeah, we shot seven episodes of that for FX Network. It was a tremendous amount of fun. I learned a lot about TV production and the hierarchy and how much say you actually have as talent, even though you're inventing and thinking of everything. Right. Because you're, uh, you're are you, at that point then, like you had sort of come into it thinking you were going to be like a producer and sort of behind the scenes. Once yeah. you shifted to a talent role, did the were you still producing as part of it, or were were there other people kind of making the call at that point? Uh, it was a very collective production, like where a lot of people had ideas and, and um, there was a, a small writer. Uh, there was like a couple of guys, like story editors. And it was, the show was very tongue in cheek. The idea is like we were going to help save people's uh, situations with trash. <laughs> and so like there was a bachelor party and there was no money. All we have is $10. So we go to the thrift shop and see what we could buy with the $10 and then go pick garbage. Yeah. And a lot of those ideas, like, okay, what, what are the three builds we're going to do on the show? What are we going to create the environment? A lot of it was making parties. So we did a couple of parties and events. We did this. This was the stupidest idea. Again, it was all tongue in cheek. And it was really like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is ridiculous. There was one girl who wanted breast implants. So instead of having a festival, we made a breastival where we try to raise money. So we picked all these wood and canvas out of the garbage and yeah. we made we made a carnival atmosphere. I basically designed the whole carnival, what it's going to look like, how the camera will look like it's always full in every direction it points. We made a, a circular carnival. So anytime the camera was turned, there was another booth. And I made up all the, the things in the booth. That's awesome. It was so stupid. But you, so you didn't have like a like a theatrical background or a production design background or anything. That was just sort of that's just, just sort of how your mind works. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And then I had enough experience. Well, I had obviously some experience shooting. Yeah. At that time I had only done that pilot and, and a lot of just like friends and family videos. But you know, now this was that was in twenty oh two. Now here it is eighteen years later and I probably I mean, I definitely have my 10,000 hours of editing right. and 10,000 hours of shooting and conceptualizing at this point with all my YouTube stuff. Yeah. And also all the, te you know, I must have, I lost count, but it's, you know, I have at least a hundred half hours of TV at this point. Right. You Cause know, you did some shows camera. like after, after the FX show, you did some stuff for, was it DIY or HGTV? Or? So, well, what happened was we, we got a taste of, uh, of, of the show business as a team, me and my yeah. brother, my brother had done quite a bit of TV at the time, but. I started being like, oh, wow, well, you got to do is shoot a pilot and pitch it and you sell it because that was my first foray. We sold it. So right, like, it's right. easy. So we went back and I bought a camera. I bought a Panasonic DVX 100, which I still have. It's sitting here in my office. Yeah. And I paid 3,500 bucks for it. I just put it on a credit card and, you know, just had faith that I would be able to pay it off because I knew I was creative enough to figure out how to come up with money, whether it be TV money or something else. Right. So I bought the DVX 100 and we shot a couple of pilots and one of them was a show called making it with John and Jimmy where we would make stuff in the basement, kind of like a cooking show. Yeah. You're like, instead of this, this false premise that trash to cash had where we're like, Oh, we're going to help save these guys. And we were like this duo that fixed people's problems. Yeah. We looked directly at the camera and said, today we're going to make a park bench and we're going to show you how we do it. And 
we we firmly believe that the story was in the build, not necessarily this fake contrived story that right. all these story editors need to come up with. And we knew there would be enough meat there in the build to just do something. And so we ended up uh, shooting a couple of episodes of a show we called Making It. And the episode that I edited and put together, this was before YouTube. I thought we would just make the show and figure out a way to produce it. I mean, figure out a way to publish it. We didn't know YouTube was even around the corner. Right. This is in like 2004. And so we shot that first episode. I edited it together. And then it was so much fun. It had so many laughs in it. We just started showing it around. And then through a series of events, we ended up selling it to HGTV. And they put it on. And they changed the name from Making It to Hammered. And we did that with the production company called City Lights Entertainment. And it was just a tongue-in-cheek, silly show where every episode we're going to show you how to make something. Yeah. And we shot 26 episodes of that show, two seasons. And then partway through, we shot about eight or ten episodes just looking right at the camera and with no premise, like, today we're going to make a such and such. Yeah. And then the network's like, you need, we need the premise, we need a premise. So we started like making things for people. It's like, in this episode, we're going to make a go-kart for our nephew that never had a go-kart. So they started needing to hang the reveal on something or somebody. Yeah. Like they, they just didn't trust it. But this was still kind of the era when HGTV, like, I feel like now it's just so design heavy and so kind of transformation heavy. Back then, they yeah. were still doing a fair amount of like how to and, and kind of step by step. And DIY right? network was still where they'd have a girl in the shop. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to make a piece of furniture. Let me show you how to do it. Instead right. of being like, we're here at this house and we're going to flip it and we're yeah, going to yeah. make money and we're going to try and get a real estate such and such and we're going to make a backyard over, you know, all this like Tony excitement. Right. DIY network was just coming out of that, like what YouTube is now. Hey, I'm going to make this thing today. Let's see how it goes. Right. Just one camera, one person. And, you know, I, I believe they dropped the ball, but, you know, they, you know, they have their bottom line that they're apparently meeting. So that's why everybody went to YouTube. Yeah. Because that was lacking. Like David Marks, who is the guy who would, excellent woodworker, he just makes stuff in his shop and be like, this is some table saw technique. This is some marquetry technique. This is some joinery technique. And one day it was just off the air. No explanation. Right. And so when, like, when did you start shifting over to YouTube? When did that transition start for you? So uh, my television experience was we did that that show, uh, Trash to Cash, which gave me a taste of the business. And then we sold uh, Hammered. And then I did a really dumb show, which was kind of contrived by producers called uh, Jimmy Duresta's Against the Grain, uh-huh. or Against the Grain with Jimmy Duresta, which was kind of like Hammered, but without my brother. Okay. So I kind of I kind of felt like a little un, unmoored, just like kind of just, you know, like I kind of was always relying on my brother to be yeah. kind of the host of the show. And now here I am being the host of the show. Did they not which, want John for it? Or did was he just not? They didn't. They or? said, we want to do, yeah, they said, so again, the same network's like, we want to do what we did with Hammered, but without your brother. And so they put me with... Yeah. And I asked my brother, he goes, Hey, you need a job because, you know, if they don't like me, that's fine. I don't care. You know, you need work. So take it. So I, they ended up saddling me with a girl. Um, and she was from, she, and it's funny, they gave her a little, like they put the show around me, but they gave her a little bit more credence Uh because she had like, like, like 50 more episodes of TV than me. And they made the show because of me, but they kind of leaned on her a little bit. And then I told this story a few times in in public, but there was one point where I kind of went to the producer of the show and I was like, could you please clarify who this girl is to me? Is she my business partner, my girlfriend, my wife, my assistant? I said, I need to know how to address her on camera because it's really awkward. I don't know. Like, because her ideas weren't great. I mean, she wasn't bad, but like she kind of took the assistant role just because like she knew the show was kind of built around me. Right. And, and I knew that I got paid a lot more than her and, you know, not that any of that really matters, but I just needed to know how to look at her on camera and right. how to, it just made my life easier if I knew, okay, she's my business partner. Then we could kind of have that relationship. Yeah. And, then and is that what they said? said oh yeah, go ahead. No, they said, keep it vague. <laughs> That's, <what they> <laughs> That's a helpful note. Yeah. They said, keep it vague. I'm like, okay, the show's got no balls and it's just weird. Yeah. These two weird people that have no chemistry in a shop together for no apparent reason. Okay, cool. Let's do that. And the show, we did five episodes, and they didn't air it until like a year and a half later, oh, wow. which was fine. I didn't yeah. want anybody to see it. Right. I thought the show was awkward. And uh, that's Jimmy DeResta's Against the Grain DIY Network show. And then uh, a couple of years went by, and I had made several TV pitches on my own with my DVX, me and my brother together. And yeah. we did a show in 2005 called Lord of the Fleas, where we pick garbage and make it into stuff and sell it at the flea market. Uh-huh. And that, you know, together, both of us on camera. And I made that pitch, which is on my YouTube channel still. 
And I, we were able to sell that show five years later through Vidiots, video wow. production company. I don't know if you know Vidiots. They have uh, editing. editing. They're out of business now. They changed the name to Switchblade Entertainment. But they had a bunch of editing suites in New York in, uh, on Hudson Street. And they did cribs and a lot of like kind of oh, okay. like like fast paced sports sort yep. of documentary style shows. And anyway, uh, I'm friends with the guy there. His name is, uh, uh, Mike Amoya and Mike and I would talk one day and I said, when are you going to start making TV shows? You got all the equipment, but you don't have a production cooking. Cause he did, he basically did post-production. Gotcha. And he said, we're looking for an idea. And I said, well, look at my YouTube channel. I got this show with me and my brother pick garbage and sell it at the flea market. You know, it's really funny. It's, it's us being silly and being super creative. And he can't call me a couple hours later. He's like, I want to try and sell this to discovery. And he said, who has seen it? I said, everybody has seen it. But everybody <laughs> that public, we showed yeah. it to is, a, is, on a, is in another job at this point. You know, anybody like in a network position has already moved on. Right, right. So now it was five years after we made it and he was able to sell it to Discovery Channel. And we shot uh, 12 episodes in my basement in my shop in the city yeah. in the, the summer of 2011. And we aired 12 episodes. And while we were in the middle of making that show, the network executives all got fired and their whole new team came in. So my show and like four or five other shows just got pushed aside for the new team. So yeah. we were still in production. We, we were scheduled to shoot live commercials oh, wow. and that all got canceled. And we're like, oh, my, my brother's like, they're still like that. Yeah, not a good sign. <laughs> not a good sign. The show hasn't aired yet. And the live commercials we were, we were, we were developing with the, the creative team has just been canceled. And uh, so the show aired and it did really well. And everybody involved in the show was like, there's no way that this is not going to get a reorder. And it just completely was ignored. Yeah. I, I'm still waiting for the phone call now, actually. Wow. Hopefully it comes today. <laughs> no, absolutely just never. No one ever answered an email again. Mike got freezed out. I got freezed out. John got freezed out. Wow. No, and nobody, that was the end of it. The show just, they aired it. It faded away. It started ending up on airplanes and cruise ships. And those 12 episodes got replayed hundreds of times. I started getting emails from like people in other countries. I remember this guy emailed me and says, I am your voice in Portuguese. He goes, I love your show. You're so creative. <laughs> he goes, when are we going to see more episodes? And that was the email I kept getting. When am I going to yeah. see more episodes? I'm like, I, the show is dead. That's the end of it. And right there and then, I started doing YouTube. Yeah. So like, it's like, you know what? I'm going to show these these assholes what they missed. Right. And I started doing YouTube. And thankfully, that's, you know, that's become my life. So in 2012, I started doing YouTube. Wow. You know, it's been eight years, I guess, if 2012 is kind of when you started doing it seriously. But you're up to, yeah. you know, approaching 2 million subscribers at this point, 1.77 million. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's that's crazy successful, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. I remember I had 100,000 subscribers and I got a, a, a contacted by like a channel partner with these things that are kind of like poison now. But at the time, this channel partner guy called me. He was so cool. I mean, I his name was Patrick. I don't remember his last name, but he's like, dude, he goes, You've accomplished, even though there's guys with, you know, millions of channels, millions of subscribers on the channel, he goes, hitting 100,000, he goes, is like in the half of a percent. Yeah. The guys with millions are in like the fraction of a half of a percent. Right. So he goes, you're really in the upper echelon. And he kind of made me realize how serious it was that I had at least 100,000. And now I have, you know, 1,700,000 and change. And, uh, and my views are, my views are, are, are pretty substantial. I have over three, I'm closing in on like 320 million channel views, wow. which is pretty, pretty big. I mean, there's only a couple of guys in the, in the maker game that are above me, but I'm real proud of that accomplishment. No, that's, yeah. that's awesome. I mean, it's, it, it's so crazy. And just that like you, you sort of were able to grow this thing yourself. And I guess that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation too, I think is just, yeah. we're in this weird void now because of you know the quarantine and coronavirus and stuff where production's not happening and you know who knows like when people are going to be back on sets and, and things like that again and so yeah. just the idea that you can sort of control your own destiny and you know i feel like a lot of people sort of in my position are, are looking at youtube right now and just saying oh my god know, it's yeah, amazing yeah, it's yeah. so good it's like people always say like how's life has i go don't worry, YouTube is Corona proof because my views have all gone up. Right. Everyone's sitting home. Yeah. And you know, like I listen to Sebastian Maniscalco's podcast all the time and he's like, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to do his voice. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to. <laughs> you know, he's someone who's used to probably making $150,000 on a weekend. Yeah. yeah. Zero. It, it's a whole zero. Yeah. YouTube doesn't produce his own shows. Right. Doesn't book his own things. Yeah. Completely sit back and let, let the, the Hollywood machine do his thing. Right now, he's got to figure out how to use a camera. Now he's got to figure out how to edit. Now he's got to. 
You know, that is where the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. If yeah. you're in a talent, if you're a talent and you want to create content, you have to do it yourself. Right. Do not count on someone to set up your podcast. Do not count on someone to shoot because you'll shoot. You know what happens when you let somebody shoot you? You shoot that like, oh, man, what a great creative day. And then it takes them eight months to edit that five minute quick piece of footage. Right, right. I make five movies a month. Right. Well, uh, yeah. So just like I guess just sort of your process of like I feel like you're always working too. <laughs> like that when, when we've shot for <laughs> Ask Us Whole House together you're shooting our projects at the same time that we're shooting. I mean, literally like when we're on yeah. your hands on a shot of your hands, you'll have a GoPro like in your mouth, you're like chewing on a GoPro <laughs> to get that angle. Or, you know, you're setting yeah. up another camera next to ours and then yeah. like, we'll break for lunch and we'll all just go and shoot the shit and, you know, eat a sandwich and you've got your MacBook out and you're like editing your next video. Like just how <laughs> there, there must be an, a, a, a good side of kind of being self-employed and, and counting on yourself and only yourself to get stuff done. But it's yeah. also all on your shoulders, right? Well, you know what, you know what I've, I've been able to do and, and it's a YouTube, it's the YouTube hustle is you need like five or six incomes, you yeah. know? Right. Like the YouTube videos are basically the, like, that's like the marketing face of everything yeah. every youtube video i do but in that video i have product placement in that video i'm pushing product that i sell on my website you know in that video i i might have two or three product placements you know the shoes i'm wearing or whatever or you know i have a couple of deals now now that i have some longevity i'm trying to get deals where they're one and two year long deals where it's just like the product's just ever present right it's just i'm going to use your product uh, my, my assistant, I have a new assistant, Aaron, Brett, Brett moved to California, I heard that, but my yeah. new assistant, Aaron is, he's great. He's like, you're like a race car driver. He goes, you know, he goes, when you, when you cross the finish line, you're like, I just like to thank Lincoln electric for responding. I like to thank Ferd. I like to thank Carolina shoes. <laughs> you yeah. <know? laughs> Cause you have all these logos all over your jacket. And, and it, that, uh, yeah. those are great. Are you approaching like, like a Carolina shoes or something like that, where, you know, it's not necessarily you know, a tool company, it, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's something that's, that you'd use in a workshop, but it could also mm -hmm. apply to, you know, 10 other people that, you know, could be hikers or yeah. whatever. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you go about getting a sponsorship like that? Do they approach you most of the time at this point? Uh, yeah. You just sit back and I say, this is the analogy I use all the time. I'm like you're at the dance yeah, and you're only going to get the girl that comes to you. If you run up to the girl and awkwardly ask her for, for a date or a dance, she's going to do like, Get away from me, you creep. Right, right. But if you sit back and act like James Dean and, you know, keep your cigarettes rolled up in your sleeve and act cool, <laughs> they'll be like, what am I missing? How come I'm not in his party? Right, how come, right. How, how come he's not paying attention to me? And then, you know, she'll come over and stop being like, hey, so what's your name? You know? Like, oh, my name's Jimmy. Think you want to, like, do an Instagram story with my shoes? Like, what do you think? And, you know, that's really how it starts. Yeah. And that's that's been my personal approach is just to lay in the cut and wait and just wait for people to, like, have that FOMO, you know, they're missing out. Right, like, right. how come I'm missing? Like, I'm like this, like what this guy's doing is cool and fun. And he obviously has people that enjoy his content. How can I be part of that? And there are, there are occasions where I, I I'll convert somebody, for instance, like a, a company recently came to me and said, would you use our product in an Instagram thing? I was like, uh, you know, if you want to send me a free pair of those, those things that, yeah, uh, I said, but you know what? Actually, I was like, are you, do you have any interest or a budget? And I'll do a couple of videos if you want. And they're like, yeah, we're actually kind of interested in that. Yeah, this is, I'm shortening it. This was like five emails. I connected them with my agent and I just signed a contract. I'm going to do two videos for them. And I'll get paid more in those two videos than I did for any TV series that I've ever done. Wow. And both of those videos will be 10 minutes long and it'll take me two days to shoot completely on my own. Yeah. And for those two videos, I will get paid more than any TV show series I've ever done. That's crazy. And I've done a series that has 26 episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess just like the, the content in your videos, a lot of the time, most of the time it's, it's for clients, right? Like you're not, you're not just like, I need a table video. I want to, I want to teach people how to make a table today. So let me, let me make a table and I don't know what's going to happen with it. Yeah. It's like I, I, I've been very lucky to like convert my, my regular life into a YouTube uh, environment where if I'm making something for somebody or if I'm making these woody trailers for, for Bullet Bourbon, I'm making a video of that. Right. And here I am, Bullet gets advertisement out of it. I get a really good, interesting content that is real world stuff. It's not just oddball, like, oh, let me make a, you know, a fire pit in my own backyard or whatever. But it's real, legit client work. And it's all, you know, it crosses a lot of uh, roads where I got to make sure that the production is done. I have timelines. They all have to look good. They have to, you know, 
have to perform good in those complicated things. It's going to be in a, a real retail environment. I have to solve a lot of problems. I can't, the door can't slam down and cut someone's finger off. So all these problems get solved in real time and I end up with some interesting content. And then another advertiser might see that and go, oh, Jimmy makes advertising signs. You think he can make an advertising sign for my restaurant right. or my shoe store? And that's another good thing is I do signage. So when a client like Carolina comes to me, he's like, how can we incorporate our product as not necessarily like a workshop tool? Well, let me make a sign for you. Oh, great. Oh, you know what? Let me make license plates that you can then give out with the first 100 pair of shoes you sell, right. you know, after my video. And that's what I did for a video for them last year. I made a, a license plate press that says I make, which is my own personal moniker. Yeah. And at the top, it says Carolina. And at the bottom, it says Duresta. And I literally stamped them in a hydraulic press. So you basically get like, I get a license. So I was like, where, where can I get license plate blanks? Now, if you think of anything, Google it first, because more than likely somebody in the world produces it. Right. So I just Googled license plate blanks and you can get like these 30,000 thick aluminum plates that or a flat piece of sheet die cut in the shape of a license plate. That's I stick awesome. them in my press and they come out completely formed into whatever my die is shaped. Perfect. I, I'm curious too, just sort of on that, like you're a jack of all trades and sort of show, you know, everything from blacksmithing to, you know, CNC work to woodworking, uh, welding. Do you ever worry about just sort of, I guess, does your audience go along with you in all those different places, or do you do you find that there's you know a hardcore metalworking audience, a hardcore woodworking audience? Yeah, well, I I kind of skew like now lately these days I'm kind of like sixty percent metalwork, like thirty percent woodwork, and you know twenty percent other, which yeah. might be leatherwork, CNC, a uh, little bit of CNC woodwork. Like you don't really necessarily categorize CNC and woodwork in the same thing. You know, it's like right. oh that's a CNC, even though you can do fine joinery. People don't because you're not sweating, you know dripping sweat off your nose into your joint. It's not the same thing. <laughs> People don't think you've earned it. So, um, so I, where I, where my videos underperform is CNC stuff and like my printing and my bookmaking stuff. Mm. You know, those are old specialized machinery and like, in yeah, both cases, people, yeah. You know, people just like, oh, oh, Jimmy's done another printing video. Mm. I don't need to see this. And then, you know, the comments are like, oh my God, these are my favorite videos you've ever done. But it's, you know, it's a much smaller percentage of the audience. Where I get big traction is with like grandiose builds and like complicated things like, um, or knives or any kind of like weaponry yeah. <laughs> or perceived weaponry. They always do well. Yeah. Um, like if I do like a blacksmith knife, like I, the other day I made a knife about a month ago, I made a knife that has like a, like an offset in it. So basically if you take like a, a pie or a cake, a cake uh, spatula, that's kind of offset shaped like a triangle. Uh -huh. I took one of those and I basically made it look like a chef's knife. Yeah. I did that idea with a flat back so you could like chop onions and then pick them up oh, cool. or scrape your plate off without like, dragging your knuckles. Right. And that, that video performed really well. I think it's over half a million views now. That's wild. So it's also about the thumbnail. You know, if the thumbnail is like a picture of, like I just did the, the bullet bourbon secret book where the bullet is hidden in the book. Yeah. Yeah. That video, it, it broke a hundred thousand, which is, which is, there's nothing to sneeze at, but you know, it's people see me doing like printmaking or bookmaking or laser cutting and they get to be like, yeah, you know, on a grand scale, but I mean, still got a hundred thousand views or more, which is, you know, which cool. is really good for a lot of maker. Videos. That's yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, I want to talk to just about sort of your video style and sort of where that, where your aesthetic comes from, you know, there, most of your videos or, you know, at least the more recent batch. And I don't know, sort of, you know, when you started eight years ago, but there's very little, Sound. There's there's no narration on on the YouTube mm -hmm. versions usually. It's it's sped up, you know, really really fast. I do, usually, I'll do I'll do three styles of videos, and yeah. my 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 fast paced, sped up kind of time lapse video style started when I realized, okay, I'm going to do this. I want to try and make some traction on YouTube. I want to make sure that it's going to be a quick edit, and a quick edit is no sound. And you don't have any copyright issues if you put no music in it. Right. And so by default, I made videos that were internationally usable because I don't have any English language in right. them. I have no language in them. Yeah. And I don't have any copyright issues crossing borders because I'm not using any music. So it's just the sound of the tool. So that's like, that's about, you know, the predominant style that I use. If I make a video like that, for instance, I just made a video with the, the bullet bourbon is a good example where the bottles are in the book. That sound was just the droning vacuum sound of the laser cutter, which is completely like drone sounding. It's like yeah. There's nothing dynamic about the sound. It's boring and annoying. So I put music in it. I put some copyright free music I get from YouTube. I only ever really get music from YouTube. Yeah. This way I won't have any issues. If I get a song from a friend that's like, don't worry, it's copyright free. Somebody may have claimed it because it's similar to, you know what I mean? So right. if I can get it from YouTube, 
there's no problem. And, you know, if you go through it, I always end up, everyone's like, wow, that's a great song. What'd you get? I got it on YouTube. Like, you got it on YouTube? I'm like, yeah, the creative studio. You just got to take 10 minutes and listen to 15 songs and yeah. find one that you like. You and know? it's all free. You download it, you can put it in and it's, yeah, yeah it's awesome. Um, so, but like, so developing that style, that sort of sped up video style, like what, it, it's so, it's so identified with you now. Like, yeah. Why? How did you come to that? How did you make that your aesthetic? What was what was the thought, the well, thought process behind it? I guess in the beginning, I only made videos that was six minutes long, so yeah. that was like my magic number. So everything had to fit within six minutes, and I basically looked at every step of the process. And and early on, my my mantra is basically: we need to see transformation. Yeah. We need to start with like a stock or material or something found in the garbage, and it has to transform in the few minutes you're watching. So that's really been my mantra. And in that transformation. It's fun to watch stuff happen fast yeah. and I could force feed you the video and you will stay engaged because everybody loves watching things happen fast. But it really was born out of my own personal attention level. When I watch other YouTubers, especially at the time, now going back seven, eight years ago, every YouTube video started with, all right, today I'm going to make a brick oven. Okay, right. I got these bricks here and I got some mortar. And I got my mortar, you know, you get the 50, and like all of a sudden I'm like, I'm completely zoned out. Yeah. It's a I minute and a half before the, they do anything. Yeah. I jumped through the video to see his hands moving. That's right. the only thing. I just want to see the hands moving. And that's really where it kind of came from. Like, that's why, I, if you notice, I never do an intro. Yeah. I mean, I never do the same intro. I'll, I'll like, when I do my vlogs, which is another thing where I only talk, yeah. but I intersperse it with like, you know, it's kind of like my bulletin board. This is what's going on. These are my new business partners. This is some of the stuff that I have to promote. And, you know, these are the things I'm doing. This is an event I'm going to be going to. So those are my vlogs. It's basically just like a soundboard to show what I've been up to like once every couple of months. And I also use those to drop in some weird advertising. My vlogs are a place where I can literally look at the camera and go, you know, use uh, the Game of Thrones new video game or whatever the hell, you know, I'm getting paid for that week. <laughs> right. I couldn't I couldn't comfortably plop that in the middle of me making, you know, a, a convertible bench because it's just odd for me right. to just stop in the middle of this fast forward video and go. Hey, don't forget to go watch the Game of Thrones video game. I'm making right. that up. Right. Having the vlogs is is basically my dumping ground for for me looking at the camera and talking. And now with so many different platforms, like, you know, I feel like your vlogs, there was a there was a time what maybe 2 years ago when you were doing like one a week, right? Like they were Yeah, they I was doing one I, I I first started at once a once a week. So I was out of my mind. I did once a week and like every other week I put out a vlog and a build video. Then I started doing a build video, then a vlog, a build, you know, every other week. And then I just was like, I got so burnt out on it. And I kind of just started, if I have a good person to interview or a good piece of information to share, that's usually the anchor for the vlog. Right. I always say like, that's like my, like as a news agent, there's like a news agency. I'm always looking for that one good piece of content that I could share with the world, whether it's my friend who's a patent attorney. I do an interview with her recently or, you know, it's a, it's an interview with like some some real old creative that never, ever gets on Instagram or YouTube <laughs> or my dad. You know, everybody loves my dad. Yeah, you know, I saw so, that one. Oh, that was cool. Um, but so, so like I guess just deciding like between vlog content, Instagram content now, YouTube video content, like how do you – how do you figure out what goes on what platform? Uh, well, okay. So like anything that's ongoing, interesting, but technically boring, yep. I put on Instagram. Okay. Like my Cadillac, my Cadillac build. I'll do a couple of little segments in a vlog. But for me to do a full-on video of me restoring this Cadillac, which is going to take months if I even ever do it, yep. it's, it's too much of a long-term thing. To me, that's more of like a constant droning in the background of like, Oh, look at how I took apart the motor in this power window. Right. It was completely submerged in water for a year and I was able to fix it. So don't think you need to go out and just immediately replace parts. You could take them apart, at least give it a try. If you consider it garbage, you got nothing to lose except learn how to fix it or learn what, what doesn't work. So like those little inspirational moments I put on Instagram and like the Cadillac is a perfect thing. Like, like for instance, my buddy came over, who's a car guy. He looked at the Cadillac and he's holding his chin and he's looking at it, looking at it. He goes, I got an idea. I go, what? He goes, let's take the whole thing apart, piece it out. You'll make like five grand hmm. and we'll just buy another car. I go, Mike, <laughs> this is, this is, this is an antique Cadillac. It looks so cool as it is. Right. I go, this is Instagram fodder. That's what this is. This is a big giant bag of potato chips that people just keep pulling a potato chip out of every couple of days, every time I show a piece of it. He's like, all right, all right. I don't think like that, but okay. I don't think like that. <laughs> I'm like, the car costs $1,500. Right. 
that's, you know, when you think about like, I paid $1,500 for, I really do want to fix it up. I have every intention of problem solving all the, the, the problems with the car and Instagramming the interesting ones. But for 1500 bucks, I think that's like the cost of production. A television episode costs a hundred thousand dollars. You can't even imagine where they waste the money. Yeah. And just to have something that that's, that's yeah. So visual. That's so grabbing that like, yeah, you can, you can kind of parse it out and make, make little pieces. out of it. That's awesome. Yeah. And then if there's like a segment, say for instance, like I'll look at it and go like, okay, I'm going to make a new logo for the car. Maybe it says, you know, the rest of the lead sled or something. And I want it to look like an old Corvette logo. Yeah. I'll show me designing it on Instagram, developing the fusion file, cutting it. And that will, that could be a standalone video. So basically like things like the Cadillac, you think of it like a coral reef in my life where it's like fodder for like potentially like, you know, parrotfish and all these beautiful things that could come out of it. Yeah. And that's, that's like, that's why I bought the racetrack. You know, I, I wanted property in town, but I bought that go-kart track across the street from my shop. Oh yeah. Yeah. Everyone's like, why are you buying that go-kart track? I'm like, because eventually I'll make a video of me making a go-kart. <laughs> I need a place to drive it. <laughs> That's awesome. One last question, and just sort of, uh, it, it ties in both to sort of the making world and, and the TV world, and that's sort of y- your relationship with Nick Offerman. Uh, how mm-hmm. did that all, like, you you guys met before he was even really Famous known as, at that yeah. point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, him and my brother, me and my brother were doing the show called uh, Hammered, which I talked about. Yeah. So John and I were on Hammered, and then John got a show on Comedy Central, which wasn't competing because, you know, you do these shows, you have like exclusivity sure. parts. So John was doing the Build It show with me, and in between, he was in California shooting episodes of American Body Shop, and Nick Offerman was on American Body Shop. Okay. And so John and Nick became friendly, and, you know, so every other week, John was in New York, and in between, he was with Nick, and, you know, the cast and crew there, they shot about 10 episodes of that. John told Nick about me, and then Nick started watching our show, and Nick kind of got to know me a little bit. He's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I make things, and Nick makes things. And then uh, the way circumstances work out, Nick found himself in the city after that show was over, after my show was over, because Megan was on Broadway uh, doing... uh, uh, young Frankenstein yeah. in 2008. John called me and goes, Hey, can I give you a number to Nick? Uh, the guy, Nick from my show, he wants to call you. He wants him to come look at your shop. He wants to build a canoe in the city while he's in town. I'm like, yeah, give my number. So Nick called me and came over to my shop and he's like, I'm looking for a place to build a canoe. And uh, he goes, this would be too small. He goes, right. but do you have any leads? And I just said, I don't know, look around Brooklyn. There's a lot more room in Brooklyn. And called me a couple of days later because I found a great shop in Red Hook. He goes, I spoke to the people at the canoe place and they don't make it because they have an old DVD that's expired uh, videotape. He goes, I told them since I'm making this, maybe we shoot. He goes, do you have any interest in shooting a video of me building this canoe? Yeah. Because I kind of volunteered you for it. He goes, but you don't have to say yes. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. That'd be awesome. Then about two weeks later, through said he calls me and goes, okay, I'm getting ready to go to Canada to pick up the parts. Do you feel like taking a ride with me? And I said, I go, you know what? I'm so busy. I got so many things to do. I said, I really don't have the time to like take off a week and drive to Canada. And uh, then I talked to a friend and a friend's like, wow, that sounds like a great opportunity. Like, why don't you do it? So I called him back like a day or two later. I was like, hey, can I go? Can I do that trip with you to Canada? He's like, yeah, sure. So I was like, all right, we'll use my car because he was going to rent the car. And yeah. we use my pickup truck. And in the five or six hour car ride going up to Ontario and we bonded. I mean, it was that like, you know, what music do you like? Oh, I like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Oh, really? Oh, did you ever listen to, uh, you know, Heart Attack and Vine? And, and like just that sitting in the car and having that right. conversation we bonded and, you know, we already kind of hung out a little bit, but you know, when you sit in a car ride with somebody for five hours, you get to know them. And, right. Right. You know, it, it was harmonious and we got to Joan and Ted's place and it was just, you know, more harmony, more good feelings. And we left there with two boat kits, drove all the way back to Brooklyn. And then we had this problem solving technique of how to get 18 foot long, 10 inch diameter tubes that weigh 300 pounds each up inside of a building with a skinny staircase. Mm. So at three or four in the morning, Nick and I are in Brooklyn and Red Hook trying to get these tubes up a third story window with ropes. <laughs> wow. And so there was all these funny moments. And I'm sure Nick would remember all of them as well. It seemed like to me, it seemed like it was two days ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this was all 2008. And uh, then Nick Nick built the boat over the next several months and I videotaped. And we, we ended up, I think it was kind of like, it was the end of the summer. We ended up going into winter. I had a Harley. I'd ride my Harley out there with my camera strapped to the back of it. And because a boat has quadrants, it's like the same. It's like it's like flipped and flipped. So it's the quarter of a boat is exactly the same as all four parts of the other boat oh, yeah. on the other sides. Yep. So Nick would like practice on one quadrant because he had never done it. Like once he got past like the framing and everything or the, the mold, 
And he, he'd be like, all right, take a couple of days, get good at it. And he called me. He's like, okay, if you're around Tuesday, Wednesday, he goes, we'll do the other side. And so he would basically get his skills up and then we're ready for camera. So I shot everything with the DVX 100 and playing around. And, you know, while Nick was experimenting with how to do stuff, I was experimenting with camera techniques. There was a cart there yeah, like with rubber wheels. So I used that as like my dolly, That's awesome. just like kind of set the camera on like a pile of clothes and just push it around while Nick is working. Did you edit it? And then too? I, I, I shot 22 hours of video and I, I edited it down to three hours. Oh, and wow. then the people at Bear Mountain Boats turned it into uh, chapters on their DVD. And I shot the whole thing and I usually edit to like Chet Baker and Beethoven and all these really classically beautiful pieces of music. Yeah. And so I gave the whole thing over with all that music in it, knowing they couldn't publish it. Right. And they're like, oh, we'll just put music in it when. And they gave it to some guy with the worst taste in music. It, it's like the worst. It sounds like a hokey television show soundtrack. Yeah. The guy got some like copyright free music. Oh, but this is copyright free music from you know 2008. Now yeah. there's like 6,000 companies making really good copyright free music. So it's like, bam, 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 bam. you know, it's like a lot of music <laughs> like that. It is horrible. Oh, and then so while we were shooting that, Nick got the audition for Parks and Rec. Uh-huh. And, you know, he was going through the audition process for Parks and Rec. And, he, you know, he had, and while we were hanging out at that time, he had, like, auditions for 10 things. And Parks and Rec was one thing I knew he was excited about because yeah. he, he, he knew the character that he was going to play was, like, similar to his, his uh, you know, his, his state of mind and stuff. And it was written for him, I think. I think. But I knew he was just excited to work with Amy and he's like, this would be a great project if it goes through. And then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. So he does he does parks and then he and Amy reunite for that show making it and they bring you on oh, yeah. to to work on that right yeah so it's funny a really funny story so making it gets announced in the news and right away I get like a thousand emails are you and Nick going to do this show together it was right. called The Handmaid's Tale and are you and Nick going to do this it's not it was called Handmade Project The Handmaid's Tale <laughs> is the reason why they changed the name gotcha so it was called The Handmade Project right it was similar to that TV show and uh, so it was announced in the news and everyone and I didn't hear from Nick for for weeks and everyone's going on so they announced it and it was like weeks later until they finally picked up maybe months later and then one day I just get a text from Nick he's like do you want to be in the show or not? <laughs> we just cut through all the BS because he knew he knew I was getting bothered right and everybody must have been bothering him like are you gonna have Jimmy on the show? And uh, he just goes, do you want to do the show or not? He goes, we'll find a place for you. I was like, and I said, I'll do it if I'm not a judge or a contestant. I said, I'm certainly not going to be a contestant. I yeah. said, I do not want to be a judge. I said, if there's no room for me after that, I said, so be it. I don't want to do it. And uh, then I had a conversation or an email exchange with uh, the executive producer, Nicole, back and forth. And she's like, you got time for a meeting? I was like, yeah, sure. So she's like, okay, go up to NBC. Uh, we're going to send you a car. I'm like, all right. I mean, I live in the city. I could just mess up. And she's like, no, 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 we'll send you a car. So they sent me a car, picked me up in my apartment, drove me to NBC, which is, you know, 40 blocks away from where yeah. I live. And I go upstairs, I'm in this waiting room. And then, and Nicole comes out to see me for the first time. And this is, you know, Barry always says this, you know, relationships, leaving a good impression and so on and so on. And uh, so Nicole comes up to me and she's like, you don't remember me, do you? I was like, no, I don't. She goes, years ago when you, the only piece of promotion that me and my brother did for Trash the Cash was on the Carson Daly show. Oh, yeah. And that's because sure. Carson Daly caught the show and thought it was good, called up Network and had us come on to the show. Wow. There was nothing to promote. The episodes yeah. were done. There was no season two. But Carson had us come on and say, hey, uh, just do something stupid. Go, like, pick the garbage and make something as a segment. Yeah, yeah. It was like a real – like if you remember the original Carson Daly show, it was almost like a throwaway, the whole episode. Right. Like, no it was on after, after Conan at that. It was on at like one yeah. in the morning or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we did this segment and Nicole was the segment producer. Oh, wow. And she said, she goes, I remember you, you know, you're the right guy for the job because you did all these like little problem solving techniques on that, How on that funny. episode. And I always, and I always remember you. And so she's like, come upstairs. We're going to have a meeting upstairs. And so I go into a room and I'm in a room and there's like nobody else in the room and there's a big screen on the wall. And she's like, okay, the meeting's going to start in five minutes and the screen turns on. And it's another room that looks like the room I'm in, but it's like the NBC <laughs> version in California. Yeah. And Amy and the showrunner and the producers and the executive, blah, 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 blah. Nick wasn't in the meeting, but Amy was in the meeting and they're all sitting there eating lunch. And we, we had a conversation about, you know, what they think the show should be and what it should be and like, and about tools and what a workshop would look like. And then at the end of it, uh, there was uh, like uh, Amy says, any questions from us? And I was like, yeah, uh, what do you want from me? Because <laughs> they still hadn't <laughs> talked about what my role was. If I, I go, is this 
is this just the consulting meeting? I said, because if it is, that's fine. I don't care. And they basically all just said, Nick just said, talk to Jimmy. Jimmy knows all this stuff because right. Nick just said, just defer to Jimmy when it comes to the maker movement. Anyway, as time went on, shortly thereafter, they basically developed this role as me being the shop guy that just makes sure that the production gets good stuff and that the contestants get good stuff. So right. they're pushing the contestants outside their comfort zone. So they're not good with the bandsaw and they're not good with this technique or that technique, or they want to make a mailbox that like dances like a dancing flower. I kind of coax them into having something successful so that the production gets good video and the contestant doesn't just come to the deadline failing. Right. You know, you don't want that. I mean, obviously that's always like the, the tension in these shows, but you don't want somebody coming to the finish line with absolutely nothing. I'm not literally doing the work for them, but I'll say, oh, you know what? Use this technique instead of that technique. It'll save you time. It'll be more successful. Right. Oh, you know what? Let's use this motor. You know what? Let's get a radio control car. Use this instead of trying to figure out how to make it from scratch. And that's the type of stuff I short circuit a lot of this thought process, mostly behind the scenes, a little bit on camera, but mostly behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, it's nice too, because I think there was, you know, when, when the first season aired, a lot of your fans were kind of like, wait, where's Jimmy? And it kind of became a running yeah. joke. Uh, yeah. But they, they've done a great job, I think, with the second season of, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, and, you and Nick did a lot of social videos together and stuff. So, like, even yeah. though there wasn't that on-air component, just seeing you yeah. two interact and, you know, it's it's uh, it's fun. Yeah, no, it's fun. And, you know, like, you know, they're, they're such a, a sweet team. And it's like people are like, you're not on camera. Like, it's, it's, I'm like, you know what? I'm a part of the show. Yeah. Season three now might overlap with two other projects I'm doing. I have no idea what's going to pan out. Right. COVID has really shaken up the world of production, of course. So as they go back into production, potentially in the fall, I might also do two other different things. So I can only do one of the three things. So right. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But, um, you know, it's interesting and it's funny for me to get paid attention to by TV is for me to like produce 750,000 of my own segments. Right. Then you get taken serious. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I remember like the first time I met you, I don't know if you remember this or not, but yeah. And you you taught us how to weld, but like that first, I don't know, 45 minutes was sort of the, the story that you told today of just sort of. We did this series and we did seven episodes and then it never went anywhere. Then we did this series and the executives <laughs> changed. And it was sort of just this like producers keep burning me. <laughs> like, what are what are yeah. you bringing to the table? And, you right. know, I, that that stood out to me just because I remember thinking like how impressive it was that you just sort of you forged your own path through all this that like you worked with all these teams that some of them, it seems like that really understood you and really got you. And some yeah. that didn't or, you know, right. the team would change and, you know, whatever, the project would fall apart. But through it all, you've just sort of been like, yeah, if you guys want to work with me, you can, you know, whatever the TV yeah. job is. Uh, but, right. you know, you're you're still kind of doing your thing and, and controlling your own destiny, too, in all this, which is yeah. it's really cool. I, I encourage anybody, if I can give any a bit of inspiration, do your own thing. If right now you're an actor and a comedian or, or creator and you want to create content. Buy a GoPro tomorrow and start using it. Yeah. Just film your dog, your cat, your pet. Start learning how to edit. I mean, it is one of the most important things that a creator really should know how to do. Yeah. If you don't end up editing content long term as much as I have, at least you could sit, you could you could help develop a scene. You could, you know what I mean? Like if you start like seeing your character through a camera. Yeah. I mean, there are actors like in the caliber of you know Nick Offerman and 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 that whole like you know guys like that that sure. just wait to be hired. Yeah. I'm not I'm just using Nick as an example of the caliber. I'm not saying Nick is like this, but you know, they they don't like the world of cameras is that person's job. Right. Mine is the thespian. But right now, look at all the thespians that have nothing to do. Yeah. Look at and look at like it's so funny to me to watch, and I know you've talked about it several times on the podcast, is like all the late night shows and all the news people that are filming themselves on their iPhone. Right. It's unbelievably funny. And like I know Seth Myers has talked about it endlessly on the Howard Stern show and several other spots where he's like, got to set up his own camera. He's got to yeah. set up his own lights and he's got to do his own makeup and he's do his own thing. And, uh, you know, he, he said it last week on, on Howard, how, you know, it's something YouTubers have been doing for the last 15 years. Right. And they do it effortlessly just because it's just part of waking up and doing the job. And now, you know, he's got to do all of it. And it's been interesting, too, to see, like, who shoots in their dining room and right. who just throws up a simple backdrop and keeps a professional like John uh, John Oliver. You yeah. know, I love John Oliver. And he just throws up a white background. Yeah. It looks amazing. Yeah. He's, you know, it's a great transition from, like, studio 
to not studio, but still keeping like that visual content that's going to live on forever. Yeah. There's not a cat walking through the background. There's right. not a plant. It's not going to look dated, you know? Yeah. And it's well lit. I mean, like his, his stuff, it looks like they really went in and kind of built, you know, built a whole yeah. backdrop and lit it. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look as, as kind of homemade as some of the other stuff out there. That's for sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird time. It's uh who knows what this is all going to look like, you know, six months from now, but yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I think there's going to be more, more people following your lead <laughs> in the end of all. Well, this. you know, like I said, if you, even, even if ongoing, like you have some celebrities that have great Instagrams yeah, and that is their foray of getting into small production on their own. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously you'll have a celebrity, every celebrity has a production company where they pitch ideas and try, but they're not behind the camera. They're not pushing the button. They're not editing. Right. You know, they're just, they're just like the, the heavy, the muscle to get, celebrities to get other shows to get shows greenlit because of their celebrity status but they're not touching any buttons right but now they are yeah and now they are starting to realize like oh wow you know this technology is available to everybody yeah. when i was in art school i mean i'm 53 when i was in art school to make a movie you needed twenty thousand dollars to make a three-minute movie sure yeah you know i i i shoot i don't know 50 hours of video a month and edit it into like four or five six movies sometimes yeah and you're editing oh, for an free. iMovie most of the time now, right? Like you don't even like you don't even pay for your software. <laughs> no, I use iMovie because there's, there's no choices. There's like yeah, there's very limited choices. That's another thing too. Like a lot of guys get wrapped up in doing After Effects and all this stuff. You know, maybe there's a time I keep waiting for that moment to grab me where I need to do an After Effects title sequence or something, but yeah. it hasn't caught up with me yet. Yeah. And you know, I think of these movies I make as like potato chips. You just you just want to keep feeding the audience. Yeah. Some some are hits, some some are misses, but the misses mean a lot to the people that really do enjoy them, and the hits mean a lot to a lot of people. All right, there it is, Jimmy Deresta. I love talking to that guy. There is just so much that you can dig into with him. It, it can go a hundred different places, and you'll just never get bored because he just knows a little bit about everything, or a lot about everything, I guess. Super smart guy. I should mention, because I didn't mention it at the beginning, Making It is not only a show that Jimmy does on NBC and a show that he piloted with his brother that got changed to Hammered. Making It is also a podcast that Jimmy does with David Pesciuto and Bob Claggett. Go check that out. They talk more about making things. So if you're into that, you know, construction and building world, that's a fascinating show. I enjoy listening to that. And it's a lot more about kind of their creative process relative to building things. And if you haven't heard it yet, go check out my interview with Nick Offerman as well. We talked a lot about Nick there at the end. I had no idea how he and Jimmy really met. I sort of knew that story, but hearing them road trip to Canada and all that was was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I interviewed Nick a few weeks ago. Go look for that interview. Listen to it if you haven't already. All right, new show coming up on Monday, and it's a really good one, really interesting one, a part of the business that I don't know a whole lot about. I talked to Jennifer Houston. She is a casting director. She's won Emmy Awards for her work on Orange is the New Black. She has cast shows like Girls, Glow, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And she's got a new project as well that's going during this quarantine. She's working on a show with Jenji Kohan, who created Orange is the New Black, all about the quarantine, and it's all being shot from home, and it's coming to Netflix soon. So we talk about that. We talk about how she casts, why she loves movies. It's a really interesting conversation. Come back Monday to hear that. All right. Send me some messages. I love hearing from you guys. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me a note. Let me know what you like. Also, leave a review or a rating if you don't mind. That helps a lot, especially for a new show like this. We'll talk to you Monday. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. <laughs>